comes the Greg, and here comes the re-alarming configuration, walking disaster, pain and destruction is coming your way. Um, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> it's demolition. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Greg. <laughs> and how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Good. Um, <laughs> welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, my name is Ria Fenn. That was Greg Knox. And I am feeling darker than the inside of a whale today. <laughs> so on with the show. <laughs> I don't know which intro is more ridiculous, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> darker than the inside of a whale. <laughs> Just, just rolling with the punches here. It's, uh, it's a, a little uh, off kilter. We, uh, <laughs> I've got the so, wrestling themed intros. You've got the darker than intros. <laughs> anyway, video nasties. <laughs> Indeed. So, on more serious note, this is the second of our crazy ladies shows that we've been doing. So, the last show was more about sort of psychological. Uh, ladies uh, killing people this one is more sort of straight up slashers so these are more body count films and if anyone knows anything about body count it's mystery offend it is indeed i am ready with the tally on my pen to note down the deaths cool so uh, these are video nasties these are 72 films believed to violate the obscene publications act 1959 or otherwise known as uh, the dpp's guide to what to watch this year <laughs> as Rhea and Greg will prove <laughs> once again you can join us on Letterboxd to see which films we are watching this year if you have that app if you do not get on it and befriend us so that we have more people to compare film watches with <laughs> so as usual uh, these films may include things that people find upsetting uh, may include things that people find offensive uh, we like to entertain the people so I do that by taking the piss and things like that. So if you are upset by glibness, then please turn off now because I'm the glibest person in the world. Uh, the show may also contain spoilers. <laughs> okay, Glibnox. <laughs> Definitely con contains spoilers. We may also talk about violent things, death, and generally swear quite a bit. So yeah, if you're offended easily, this is not the show for you. However, if you like horror bants, then you've come to the right place. And uh, you've also come to the right place if you want to hear us talk about incest, because that's essentially a big theme of the first one we're going to talk about today, uh, which has the great title Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Uh, Ooh, I, l I love this title. Now, that's uh, the long title. It is also known as just Nightmare Maker. Um, the American title of the film is Night Warning, which isn't as good, I'm not going to lie. Um, it also has the names Thrilled to Death... Mama's Boy and the Evil Protégé. Mm, yeah, I mean, I love the title Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. It has that ring to it. Um, the strap line or punchline for the poster, one sheet, is a haunting grime for bedtime, which in itself rhymes. And this whole thing is like one kind of twisted 
bedtime story between uh, an aunt and nephew. So yeah, pretty fucked up and very catchy title. Love, love, love it. Uh, and this is directed by William Asher, who is more famous for directing episodes of I Love Lucy, of all things. Um, <laughs> so fuck knows how he ended up directing this. Okay, well, it's a 1982 film, and the brief synopsis is an orphaned teenager finds himself being dominated by his aunt, who is hell-bent on keeping him with her at all costs. So that is the widowed son, uh, sorry, not widowed son, orphaned son, Billy, and Aunt Cheryl, who he lives with, and they have quite a close relationship. Some might say it seems too close. Fucked up. Yeah, so this kind of verges more on like an Oedipal sort of relationship that they've got going on. So, uh, which we will go into sort of as we discuss the film. Um, One kind of immediate good thing about the film is the first death, which comes in the first sort of two minutes. It's a very, very violent death involving a car crash. Yeah, it is. Um, It kind of reminded me of quite sort of in comparison Final Destination-esque because it's all quite well timed it's quite gruesome there's like a scaffolding um, van in front of the vehicle and I think the the brakes fail or something and the um, scaffolding like a huge metal pole goes through the windscreen and straight into the guy's head and it's actually quite well shot the way it's done it looks quite convincing and then the woman is still alive who is the the mother and father of Billy which we gather later on because he's been left with somebody to look after which we assume is this Aunt Cheryl who he's now gone into the care of Um, and she's still alive but screaming because her husband is dead in the car and then the car rolls off and goes into the water and then it blows up and they both die in the car in the water so it's quite horrific um it's an excellent start to the film and like i say a um, very epic de- death and crash very much like um a mod- the modern films of final set destination franchise so overall what did you think of the film because i was very surprised with this film i actually really enjoyed it i was getting really into it kind of as it got near the end I wanted certain characters to die, not in that way because they're really annoying, but because, you know, I was involved in the story. Yeah, I thought when I watched this film, I thought the beginning was amazing. Um, Yeah, I got into it. I liked the characters, thought it was different, thought it was fucked up, um, would recommend watching it. And there are, I found seven deaths in this film, so there's quite a lot of action going on. Um, it's not all that predictable. You don't really see um, what has happened. It unfolds quite gradually, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, and overall, it's, it's a well-done film. Yeah, um, it's quite interesting because the film, visually, it has a televisual feel to it. So it does kind of look like a made-for-TV movie in a lot of ways, just through just the general aesthetic of it but that doesn't become a hindrance in the way that it would be like for other films like so for example when we talked about i miss you hugs and kisses it was in episode number eight um that was one of the things that i mentioned about that film as a detriment but it's not a detriment to this 
Yeah, I agree. It does have that made-for-television feel to it. Um, quite simplistic, almost like a drama, I guess. Um, what's interesting is that uh, even though it's a 1982 film, it really comes across as, um, like, of the time to be very old-fashioned in terms of um, homophobia and um, homosexual... Um, sex and and gay men are like a topic throughout this film, but it's depicted in a very negative way. And it's quite, even though it's 1982, which doesn't seem so long ago, it did sort of surprise me how much they use that and how current that is in it and how kind of accepted that is as part of the plot. I mean, I'm not saying that people supported it, but some people would, and to them that wouldn't be surprising that that's in there. Nowadays, um, it's one of those things where people don't think like that as much anymore, but back then it was still so, so common. So that's, like, quite surprising. Yeah, so, like you said, one of the things that definitely elevates the film beyond sort of what is... Essentially, it's, you know, an older woman goes crazy and starts killing people. It's sort of a very sort of standard, cliched sort of story, kind of similar to something like uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is a great film for anyone who hasn't seen that. Um, Mm -hmm. What elevates it is kind of the performance, first of all, Susan Terrell, who's awesome, and also the detective character, this homophobic detective who... I mean, I'm not going to repeat, obviously, anything that he says in the film, but yeah, he does use a lot of kind of gay slurs and stuff because he thinks the main character is a homosexual. And it's very interesting because he's not a cartoon character. In a film like this, it's very easy for a character who's supposed to be, you know, you're not supposed to like them. It's very easy for them to become like a cartoon character, become like a parody, uh, where you don't then take them seriously anymore. But the guy is sort of seriously a very very hateful character and Mm. it's very satisfying obviously what happens to him in the end even if it's a bit unrealistic but hey we'll go into that in a minute um yeah i agree and what's interesting is that the the aunt um is supporting his view as well and she's quite homophobic and she says at one point one of the quotes that i can read out is um homosexuals are very very sick and so she actually thinks something mentally wrong with them this coming from the woman who flirts with her nep uh, with her nephew um you know and is inappropriate and too close with him and that has this kind of weird relationship so she's almost okay with the fact that incest would be fine if they're uh, heterosexual but the thought of um homosexuality makes her think that there's something mentally wrong with these people who are homosexual and it's just like so fucked up in that sense but you know kind of makes sense that that's the way that she thinks because her her opposing view to homosexuality is so wrong yeah it's very very hypocritical isn't it Mm, yeah very so that's an interesting aspect of the film um the the young nephew um he's basketball obsessed so a lot of the plots is run around that and he wants to move out uh, and get a scholarship so go away to like university or college as they say in america um but she doesn't want him to go she wants him to stay with her she doesn't want to be abandoned 
Um, and I believe that she was rejected by a mother and somewhere that's um, revealed in the plot that she was rejected by a mother and she it was her and her sister, I believe, and the sister's husband. And Billy is the son of her now dead sister and the husband, so she's looking after him. So that's the story, and it is very interesting. And as you say, Susan Tyrrell is incredible in this film, so I thought her performance was fantastic. Yeah, so again, we're talking sort of the second show in a row about a character who's unhinged, although the unhinged nature of the character in this sense is a little bit more grounded than in something like Possession. But still, it's like she is very, very monstrous. And it's not that she's a monster right away. Something obviously switches in her, which is that Billy, who is originally, obviously, we think of him as her nephew. But as the story unfolds, we eventually find out he is, in fact, dun-dun-dun, her son, which makes it even worse. Even weirder that she's, like, flirting with him, but yeah. Yeah, so it's clear that, obviously, she was abandoned by this guy who turns out to be Billy's father and whose skeleton that she keeps in the basement along with his head in a pickled (laughs) jar, which is... uh, yeah, Nice touch. Yeah, Yeah, very, very nice touch. I think maybe she obviously has uh, abandonment issues, (laughs) so to speak. Do you think? Well, yeah, just a bit. So she uh, hatches these uh, nefarious plots to try and make sure that Billy doesn't end up leaving her. Yeah, she keeps drugging his milk, <laughs> and he keeps drinking it and doesn't suspect anything. <laughs> yeah, kind of dim, but okay. <laughs> yeah, which um, does kind of lead me on to sort of uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about. It's like, what did you think about Billy as of himself? Because I thought he his character was very likable. Um, you know, he didn't really do anything wrong. He didn't really deserve to be in the situations that he's in, sort of being drugged or anything like all that. Um, but I've seen readings of this film where people think that he is gay now i'm quite curious as to what you thought about that see now i didn't get even the slightest hint of any of that not even like to confuse the plot i just thought of him as one of those typical sort of pretty american looking young guys just growing up um, probably crazy about girls, seems that way. Didn't get any gay vibes from him whatsoever. Um, I was genuinely really angry for him when she drugged him into failing his basketball game where he was going to get his scholarship because he was obviously so good at it and it was um, featured in the film so much how obsessed he was with basketball and how he always... Um, scored straight away in basketball um, without fail every time they showed it many many times (laughs) throughout the film and then she drugs him he fails massively and like passes out goes dizzy um, and sort of crashes into the wall and I was genuinely so angry for him so that's just a great sign that I was really into the character and what was going on Um, and she just plays that part so well of being really conniving and ruins his only chance. So it's just annoying me that he was sabotaged so much. So I I mean, I thought he was great in this film, and I, I didn't portray him as gay at all, or even possibly gay. I just thought he was just a normal teenage boy, really, in America. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that as well. But as I said, it's because I'd you know, seen these interpretations of the film, shall we say, where people thought 
he was actually gay. So I don't know, I just thought I'd ask. I mean, I, say, I don't think he's gay at all. Um, and though the characterization of the, the homosexual characters in the film is very strong, I think, because there is one openly sort of homosexual character in the film, but he's not portrayed as sort of flamboyant. He's not over the top. He's just, you know, a normal guy, which is very, very strange for like, you know, a 1982 film. Yeah, uh, it was even more surprising in the plot, so it kind of hid the, the twists well in the sense that they did it that way. But usually it would have been a bit more obvious in this era, the way that they did it. They wouldn't have done it any other way in a, in a lot of um, productions. So I think this was extremely well done, how, how normal they behave, because usually it is overacted. And that is why I don't think Billy had any signs of his sexuality in this at all. He just seems to be a normal teenage boy. He wants to play sports. He's got a girlfriend. They sort of end up having sex at one point, which is a good excuse for boobs in the (laughs) film as per usual. So it's all like it ticks all the boxes in terms of that. And it's not that predictable because they don't overplay that. Um, homosexuality, even though it, it is such a running theme of this film. So, yeah, I thought it was incredibly well done, very tasteful, you know, not actually offending anybody aside from these extreme put-downs of homosexual homosexuality at the beginning, which we would never hear these days in a film. It's just, you know, a, a, a thing of that era and the way that people fought back then and how surprised they were at how hidden it was at the time so for us now that does seem strange but overall they played it very very well i did enjoy that yeah and this character carlson who uses all the homophobic slurs and stuff like that he's not portrayed in a positive light at all he's kind of portrayed as yeah extremely bigoted not just against homosexuals but against immigrants he's seen as being so convinced that Billy's a homosexual and that he obviously would have to have something to do with the murders even though all the evidence suggests otherwise doesn't listen to other people um so yeah this film doesn't promote his views even though he expresses them in the film if that makes sense because that's uh, a thing that people do where just because a character expresses hateful opinions doesn't mean the film supports them yeah no it's it's incredibly well done i did appreciate that about the film um, the guy who dies near the beginning, who she stabs, which um, spurns off this whole story of um, whether Billy is gay or not, and these detectives coming into the plot. Um, was he like a local handyman? Because she tries to offer herself to him, and then she obviously tells the detective or the policeman that it was attempted rape and she had to kill him. And that's where this plot all comes from. Um, where they don't know the reason for the murder and they don't know who did it. Um, was he like a handyman or was he... Yeah, he was. He was a TV repairman. So yeah. he's a TV repairman and he was also the lover of the basketball coach. All right, okay, so there's your connection. So, yeah, I mean, I thought that was very well done because she gets rejected by him, not knowing that he's gay. But And then later on she's saying how sick um, gay people are. And so that all ties in because she's been rejected, not knowing that 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 is his sexuality. Um, But she takes it as she's just, I mean, she just hates being rejected by men anyway, doesn't she? Because she 
lost whoever the father was of Billy and she has this abandonment complex from her mother and she's not with anybody. She's obviously very lonely and she's filling that hole with um, her son or nephew, Billy, by having this close relationship to replace the fact that she hasn't got anybody, she hasn't got a partner. So it is very fucked up and, um, yeah, it's, it's very well done. I did think that this was quite an involved plot and very well thought out. Yeah, so a couple of things just uh, before we kind of wrap up the review that I thought were quite interesting or that I liked. Uh, This is one of the very, very first film appearances of one Bill Paxton, who Mm. plays a character called Eddie, who is sort of, I guess, like the high school jock. Um, But he doesn't really have that big of a role in the film. Almost to the point, I'm not even really sure why he was in the film to begin with, because he only really appears in like two scenes. Yeah, yeah. But still, I'm not sure why. it's Bill Paxton, so, you know. <laughs> Definitely worth mentioning. Um, I liked when, so when she cut off her hair and she got crazier and more aggressive with this very short haircut, I thought that was a really excellent turning point in this film. Yeah, because it did make her appear more kind of un, unhinged, more crazy. And it's like, it makes me look younger. I think was her excuse for it as well, which I thought was like, no, no, it doesn't. Yeah, she didn't. She just looked more crazy. And then she like, um, Billy's girlfriend, Julie, comes around and she hits her over the back of the head with a meat tenderizer and knocks her out. And um, yeah, I thought that was like a pretty exciting part of the film. She's then doing this whole Jekyll and Hyde thing where she's being crazy, but then she's apologising, saying, I'm so sorry, I... I like you really and then she's like behind their back she's like knocking them out and stuff she's like gotten into drugging Billy's milk frequently like probably every day and then we discover the body in the head and jar in the basement um and then Julie tries to escape and it's all very exciting so yeah I thought it was awesome um any favorite deaths in this Greg? Well there are two characters who are essentially nosy neighbours, or at least it's a, I think it's a husband and wife. Um, the wife is definitely a nosy neighbour, so her name's <laughs> Margie. And uh, you probably wouldn't be able to do this now, but this was back in the days where people's front doors were just wide open and anyone could just walk, walk in, you know, willy-nilly, <laughs> you know, without kind of any questions being asked. And she was just like, yeah, I'll just go around to uh, my neighbour's house. And, <laughs> uh, yep, she's there. And she dies by being cut with a machete, of yeah. all things. Yeah, she cuts her with a big machete and then gets the guy as well, who's the other neighbour, cuts off his hand and his head with the machete, which is pretty damn awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty messed up death as well. Yeah, they save in this film uh, a lot of the deaths for the last sort of 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, yeah, it works really well. It's, the film's got really good atmosphere, I think, because you kind of know that bad things are going to happen. And yeah. when the shit hits the fan, it really hits the fan because it's dark outside, it's raining. Uh, you do kind of really, really feel very uneasy because you you don't know who's going to live you don't know if billy's going to live you don't know if his girlfriend julie's going to live um yeah. yeah so you do kind of really want to see them survive and i really did when i i hadn't seen this film before we uh watched it for the show and i was oh, getting great. really into it yeah me too and it's just like because they're both so young as well billy and his girlfriend because they're like about to go on to university or 
college or whichever you want to say. Um, it's very tense as well because when she gets knocked out with the meat tenderizer, you don't know if his girlfriend is dead already or whether she's alive and just out cold, whether she's going to live, um, whether Billy's going to live. And it's just so tense, like you said. I thought it was really exciting at the end and, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and her and Cheryl have a really epic fight in a pond, of all things. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, yeah, and excellent ending, very unpredictable. You're very sort of invested in this film by that point. So, yeah, really cool. Yeah, although um, I did find it funny. Like, I liked the ending and everything, don't get me wrong, because all the people you like live and all the people you didn't like died, which is <laughs> generally how these things are supposed to go. Um, but I do like how, like, they end the film and then there's a crawl at the bottom, basically, because at the end, Billy shoots Carlson. So he yeah. shoots him. And you're thinking, well, how the fuck are you going to get away with this? Because you just shot a policeman in yeah, cold blood. Doesn't it's like, do much for his case, does it? The original case of him being accused of murdering the handyman. <laughs> no. But then apparently it's like, well, he got let off straight away. It was temporary insanity. So. Yeah. <laughs> The poor guy was under a lot of stress, which yeah. he was, you know. Yeah, so. I think that was the producer's way of saying, no, don't worry, they all lived, it's fine. Everyone lived happily ever after, don't worry about it, it's all good. Yeah, it also gives it that end of the film crawl feel of, this is a real story, it really happened, it's based on real life, and it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> but they did that a lot back then, so... Yeah, so, as I said, unexpected great film. I really enjoyed this. Uh, the performances were really good. Yeah, Susan Terrell is awesome because her character, even though, you know, from the things that we talked about on the show, sounds like she's a monster. She really isn't. Um, you do kind of feel some kind of sympathy for her, even though she is, you know, really fucked up, as I said. And, yeah, it's, um, yeah, unexpectedly a very, very good film, as I said. Uh, very pleasantly surprised. Some very cool, cheesy 80s music at the end. <laughs> very dramatic. Yeah. And it's very interesting that this is a slasher film when, well, it's very interesting that it's considered to be a slasher film because if you look at a lot of stuff out there, like on the web or in books, this kind of gets grouped in with all the other sort of slasher films that were going on at the time. But one, this doesn't really feel like a slasher film to me, apart from maybe the body count. You know, it's a lot more kind of thoughtful than a slasher film, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, I agree it is more thoughtful, but yeah, I mean, it does kind of categorise as a slasher film because there are a lot of deaths in it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really different and especially with this whole weird incest theme going on. And the first couple of deaths um, that we start with in the car, that is not does not lend itself to a slasher film really at all until at the end when you realise it was purposely set up. Um, that's when it feels like a slasher film. But up until that point, I was convinced it was not a slasher. No. And, um, well, I make this assumption every time that I ask this question, and I'm always proved wrong. I don't think it will be this time, though. Um, should this have been a video nasty? Uh, no. No, I agree. It's a pretty easy one because there isn't really anything sort of nasty about it. I mean, yeah, you've got homophobic policemen, you've got the sort of incest elements, but it's not sleazy or anything like that really at all. 
I mean, she doesn't really go too far with the whole incest thing. It's more of a fantasy for her, or it's more of a kind of weird obsession. It doesn't actually go there. So, yeah, I'm going to say it's not a video nasty. Now, what is surprising is this is actually not available on DVD in the UK, which is odd because, as I said, this is actually a good film and no one's actually thought to release it yet. Um, So anyone out there, Arrow, 88, any of you guys, shameless, if you're even still going anymore, um, yeah, release this film. It's really good. People will buy it. I'll buy it. It's a great film. (laughs) Agree? Yeah, I think more people should see this. So, yeah, highly recommend it. There's a lot of twists in this. So even though we have spoken about it on the show, you definitely need to just view this yourself to get the full impression of the film. Okay, so that is a slasher, apparently. Um, The second film we're going to talk about may also be a slasher. However, more likely, it falls under a particular subgenre that I am a huge fan of. And we may have mentioned this more than once on the show um, is this is a Jallo called Madhouse. Uh, alternative titles for this one are There Was a Little Girl and And When She Was Bad. And it's directed by Ovidio G. Asinitis, um, who is more famous for being the man who fired James Cameron from Piranha 2 The Spawning. Uh, well, which, you know, hey, if you're going to make a name for yourself, that's kind of one way to do it. Um, so yeah, this is a Jallo. Now, on the next show, we're actually going to talk about free Jally in and of themselves on the show. Um, so I'm going to go more into what a Jallo is on that show. Um, but essentially, if you think about it this way, a Jallo is essentially a very violent murder mystery. Ah, okay. And they were all made in Italy at the time. Yes, although this is a slight anomaly because although the crew and the director are all Italian, um, this is actually made in America with an all-American cast. So it has a different feel from your typical Jallo. And do all Jallo usually have a very similar aesthetic as in um, it's often been mentioned about the kind of red lighting or primary colours and the way that um, it's portrayed visually. Is that the case with all of them, or? Um, so a lot of them are very stylish. So i.e. they're very very well directed. Um, this one is actually quite well directed as well, although it's slightly different. This mm-hmm. one is a lot more slower and more atmospheric than your typical Jallo, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've got the synopsis. So Madhouse is a 1981 film. And the synopsis is, a woman is pursued by her taunting, murderous, sadistic, psychopathic twin sister and the relentless demonic Rottweiler that she has on a killing spree. Now, I was pleasantly surprised by this film because I absolutely loved it, even more than Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. I thought this was really amazing, actually. Yeah, it's um, it's a film that I own, actually, on uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Um, it's very, very good. It's, as I said, it's very atypical for a Jallo. It's a lot more slower paced than your typical Jallo. Um, it's got a lot more atmosphere due to the kind of threatening air that the film kind of pervades at all times, because uh, this is kind of no holes barred. Um, no one appears to be safe, even if you're an animal, if you're a child, a deaf child as well, by the way, a woman, 
stock Asian stereotype character. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no yeah. one appears to be safe. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and um really loved the opening title sequence. Um, there's a lot of creepy nursery rhyme type music throughout this. Um, I thought it was it began in such an amazing way. Um, there's like the um, there's like a rocking chair with a girl in, and it's just so fucked up and dark. It starts off with this kind of rockabye baby creepy slow music, and then there's like another girl stood next to the one in the rocking chair, and she eventually smashes her face in with a rock. And it's even though you can tell it's really false. Um, it's just very disturbing and very gruesome. Um, and it doesn't matter that the prosthetic doesn't look that real. It's just the way that it's done and the way that it's shot. And it is very stylish, as you say, um, and quite slow paced. So there's a lot of anticipation built up. And I just thought just the beginning itself was amazing. Plus this demonic Rottweiler throughout the film is actually really quite scary or the, the whole thought of it. And the fact that they're twin sisters and they're connected and you just kind of want to know their backstory. It's like the good sister and the evil sister. Um, It's just such a great setup. I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, yeah, as I said, I agree. It's uh, it's really good. Um, The opening intro music is very, very good. It's very, very strong. And uh, the score of this film is performed by Riz Ortolani, him of Cannibal Holocaust fame. That's the most famous score that he's done. And a lot of this score does appear to be recycled from Cannibal Holocaust. You've got a lot of the boom, boom, oh, booms. Yeah, I noticed that straight away and I just thought it sounded the same, but I didn't realise it was scored by the same guy. So that makes a lot of sense now. I was about to mention that. <laughs> yeah, although it's a great score. Yeah, and like true to the title... Um, especially at the end of the film, this is a madhouse. It just becomes a madhouse. It's absolutely crazy. So yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fantastic film. Definitely recommend. Yeah. Now, what I'm going to say for these Jally films that we're going to talk about on the show, um, more so than any other kind of subgenre of film, um, it relies a lot on the whodunit aspect so you you know the twist as to who the killer is and things like that so what i'm going to say is that for any jallo that we review we're not going to spoil the twist as to who the killer is and to prevent that we will talk about deaths in these films but we're not going to mention who dies so mm-hmm. for example um one of my favorite deaths in this film is a very very slow death it takes about six or seven minutes uh for the whole kind of set piece to be carried out now what's interesting about this is that you've got the killer chasing this character throughout a house and it goes on for quite a while as i said but what's interesting is there's no music while the chase is going on yeah i mean it's like set in this big mansion which is almost like a block of flats or something um but the actual apartment itself is huge inside and um she's living in this this woman's mansion house or looking after it or something i think she's a tenant in there and so the janitor and the owner kind of comes in and out the landlady 
so they're involved in the plot as well and yeah it's very it's shot in a very cool place anyway and there's a lot of scope for chasing around and drawing that out which is done very very well yeah um yeah so the landlady in this film has a very very interesting name her name's amantha not samantha amantha yeah, do you know what I've actually got noted down? Samantha slash Amanda, because I wasn't sure what they actually said. <laughs> so I guess that's both names ticked off there. Uh, Amantha Beauregard, she was called. Yes, yeah, so it's a very, very interesting name. And you did mention sort of uh, the... Uh, we've got a, a character who is essentially a Japanese stereotype, although it's not as offensive as Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is obviously the most Japanese offensive Japanese kind of stereotype, not even yeah. played by a Japanese person ever. Um, yeah. yeah. At least this was an actual legit Japanese person. Yeah. And, we, and nobody's safe. We've even got a cat deaf in this film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor cat. I think. Yeah. It gets no, hung no, that- and everything. Yeah, it does get hung and, and swings in, which is both quite shocking and comical at the same time. Um, I know Greg's a cat man himself, so we'll say yeah, no more about dad. that. Might might upset him because he's a cat dad. I am um, a cat but, dad, yes. Yeah, I, I double-checked my score and I did actually get nine deaths in this, which is pretty damn cool. I again, thought this was, you know, the suspense was great in this film. Um, the deaths were very well timed and spaced out and yeah it's like full of anticipation this film loved it yeah so the most interesting thing about the film in a lot of ways is the fact that it's the only film that i've seen where a trained attack dog is the murder weapon yeah very very interesting um that means that there's quite a few stunts in this with like padding around people's arms while he sort of pretends to savage their arm very realistically but you can tell that that's been set up but all the same it's very creative for a 1981 film it's very well written um love the contrast of the two sisters i mean it is very typically opposite but it's like the teacher um the main sister of the film um is it julia that's right. Yeah, Julia, because um, she's got a teacher friend as well, I think it's called Helen. So quite a lot of the plot and details unfold through them sort of being friends and te- um, speaking to each other at break time and stuff like that, which is quite a nice dynamic. Um, so the the good sister, Julia, she's actually um, a teacher at a deaf school. And so she's really sort of giving back to the world and helping people she wants to have her own kids she's got like the perfect boyfriend um and then you've got the polar opposite so you've got her evil sister who bullied her growing up and who is apparently horribly diseased and disfigured although when you do see it i didn't think it was that shocking what did you think well Right, so all I'll say is that they are supposed to be identical sisters, but even though she is apparently deformed, it's clearly not the same actress, it's clearly a different actress, so I'm not sure how that's supposed to work. Yeah, and she says to her, oh, you've changed your hair colour and we don't look as similar anymore, which is kind of believable and, you know, they've grown up quite separately, so 
different circumstances and it can change you physically and obviously she's got this disease but it would have been more convincing if they did use the same actress or two twins or two women who looked very similar um well yeah i didn't think like for her horrible disease or disfigurement i didn't really think it was played up that much i thought it was very minor in terms of the aesthetic. I expected them to go further with it, to be honest. So I was slightly disappointed or surprised by that and just thought it wasn't very effective. But obviously it was 1981. The prosthetics weren't done that well for this movie. But I feel like they could have made a bit more effort with that, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I'm not really sure why they made her disfigured either. I mean, it clearly sounded as if she was already a hateful character. So I'm not sure why they needed the disfigured angle because she was in hospital. Yeah, she escaped the hospital, but she could have been there for any number of reasons anyway. Yeah, I think, to be honest, she could have just had some kind of mental issue as in her mental health from her youth or just been a bully. And, you know, she's a psychopath in this film anyway, so... I feel like she could have just been the evil darker sister without the physical disfigurement and it would have still worked. So I think you're absolutely right. She could have just been in an institution and that would have worked just as well for the plot. But, you know, they decided to play it as she was disfigured and perhaps it could be almost fatal and that's why she had to see her. So I guess that's why they made that choice, but I'm not too sure. So there's a couple of other things I kind of wanted to touch on sort of uh, before we finish the review. Uh, Now, we have already mentioned that there is a dog in the film and the dog is there to attack people and kill them. So it's not really a spoiler to say that eventually someone kills the dog, uh, which is probably the scene that landed this in trouble. However... What did you think of this? Because it's clearly not a real dog. It's clearly a fake dog. Oh, yeah. So that makes two animal deaths in this film. The the cat that gets hung and then later the dog. Um, So I thought it was actually very cool. I didn't think it was terribly realistic, but I thought it did it justice and they did a reasonable job of it. I, I thought it was a very cool part of the film. I wasn't overly offended by it. Um, yeah, I thought it was thought it was great actually. Very dark. Yeah. What did you think? Well, it's a dog getting a fucking power drill to the head <laughs> through the door. But yeah, I just thought it was well done. I mean, much better than the uh, disfigurement prosthetics on her face. They they obviously spent their budget on that dog drill head scene instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's where all the money went, clearly. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the deaths were done effectively, um, so I do feel like they put a lot of effort into that. Um, Yeah, incredibly well shot. Not overly realistic that I would be incredibly shocked, but just right for the era and just right for the film, I felt. And um, the last sort of... 10 or 15 minutes to me and um, I know you've seen this film because you watched it with me um, reminded me very much of Happy Birthday to Me oh yes yeah, so so much I was definitely going to say that it's literally the same like um, what year was Happy Birthday to Me so Happy Birthday to Me was just well it actually was 81 as well so it may have come out work? just before or maybe at the same time. 
But it is very mm. curious that you have these two films that come out in basically the same year that have a very, very similar, well, story as well, because it's, you know, it does Shining style five days before so-and-so's birthday, four days before their birthday, three days before their birthday, etc. And uh, mm. yeah, you've got all these dead bodies around a table with a cake, you've got crazy people, got people in party hats yeah in party hats yeah exactly <laughs> and it is literally a madhouse but i feel like madhouse is a better title um i think happy birthday to me was awesome um i kind of felt like it was going that way with the party um the guy i won't say too much about it but the guy at the end who's singing and dancing around it does create this very um maniacal atmosphere and yeah, it's just great. This is such great build up. And with the countdown to the birthday, I thought that was awesome. So, and, um, with the, our killer Rottweiler, I did think at some point he's definitely got to savage somebody's throat to kill them. And that does happen. So you do kind of get, get what you want out of that. Um, him as the murder weapon as well. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, the film, weirdly, for a Jallo, normally what they try and do in Jally is they try and have a character who's there for comic relief. Um, don't really have anything like that. This is actually quite a serious film. If anything, mm-hmm. there's actually a streak of black humour running through it with uh, a character who sings nursery rhymes in a very sinister manner. Yeah, I love that. I actually think that the the black humour works so well for this and that's what makes it feel like a real madhouse at the end. Like old King Cole was a merry old soul. You'll never be able to hear to that in the same way ever again. Yeah, um, I also thought it was quite funny that the landlady threw in there that this mansion used to be an ex-funeral parlour or, or on a funeral parlour or something like that, which I thought was really funny. And then there's that part where uh, Julia needs her friend Helen to come around and look after her and they had like sexy pyjamas and knee socks on for a sexy sleepover, which was always going to happen. And then she says to her, whatever you do, don't open the door. And of course she does. And that was going to happen as well. But all these things are great because you see it coming, but you want it to happen as well because it's just so satisfying in the film and makes for excellent horror. Indeed. Which uh, brings us to the obvious question, the one we ask every single review, is that I think I know the answer to this one as well. Should this have been a video nasty? Um, No. I agree. Yeah, shouldn't have been a video nasty either. So the only contentious bit is the bit with the dog being killed with a power drill. And even then, it's clearly not a real dog. It's cool, but it's not really upsetting at all. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, overall, excellent, excellent movie. Uh, Highly recommend it. So if you like the sound of our review, uh, Rhea, clearly very, very big fan of that one, as am I. Mm-hmm. I really like the film as well. And I own the, uh, say, dual Blu-ray DVD combo from Arrow, um, who released this uh, in the middle of last year. Um, it's very, very good. So yeah, highly recommend that one, one to check out. Um, last film we're going to talk about today, one possibly not to check out. Um, but it's still kind of got its own weird charm anyway, is a film called Unhinged, which is directed by Don Gronquist. And uh, yeah, this film is a little bit odd. (laughs) And uh, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. So Unhinged is a 1982 film. 
Um, and the synopsis is three college girls on their way to a music festival crash their car in an isolated woods during a rainstorm and they are taken in by a mysterious family in an old mansion. Little do the three girls know that the family has a dark murderous secret. Now, <laughs> when I looked on IMDb, um, it says that they went to a jazz festival, but I pictured it as a rock festival or something like that, a rock concert, um, because... I just thought that sounds cooler, but actually it's supposed to be a jazz festival, which sounds really lame. <laughs> yeah, these are not the kind of girls who you would imagine would enjoy jazz. Yeah, um, they're like 20 years old as well. It's a little strange. Um, if anything, that is unhinged that they're on the way to a jazz festival when, when they crash their car. But anyway, it's uh, Terry, Nancy and Gloria... Um, none of them can act. None of the three <laughs> girls. It's very wooden. And this film is hilarious, but perhaps not one to recommend. But if you want to see something very wooden and terrible, then you might want to watch this just for uh, research. <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything that you said just then. So you've got a very, very weird mishmash of active performances. So you've got the three girls who all appear to be either stoned, uh, they all appear to have had a lobotomy, or they're just on very, very heavy sedatives, because they read all their lines like this the whole time. Oh my god, it's so terrible. It's like, you know, like when you watch Clueless, and it's that kind of American high school sort of attitude, where they're like, oh my god, and way too relaxed. It's just like that, but mixed with really terrible acting. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things about this film that cannot be intentional at all is that, bear in mind, the story, as Rhea said, is these three girls, they crash their car, which, hey, it's probably their fault, let's face it, and they end up at this weird house. And bear in mind, obviously, things happen during the film, but at no point do they seem even the slightest bit alarmed by what's going on. <laughs> but it's like, meh! Oh well, you know, let's just get on with things. <laughs> yeah, they're just way too relaxed about it. But the other thing is that they um totally I've got no other word for it other than mansplain in my head. They're not men, but they spell out the plot with the dialogue so obviously that it takes away any mystery from this film whatsoever. So you're basically told everything you need to know. And one of the most hilarious parts that sticks in my head, because I actually finished watching this this morning, um, and I was laughing like most of the way through, um, but one of the girls that they keep calling the little one, who is called Gloria, <laughs> she's like the worst off from this so-called crash which none of them seem really too bothered about um but she ends up in a separate room by herself in a bed kind of recovering and when they eventually go into that room all that's happened is she's got a plaster on her forehead <laughs> that was absolutely hilarious yeah oh my god it's like she's been in this horrific crash and how have they um emphasized and portrayed that visually well they have stuck a band-aid on her forehead <laughs> Oh, you've got to save money, Bria. Oh my god, really? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was really stupid that she only really appeared again about 75% into the film. It's like, where's she been this whole time? She's been in bed for like three days. 
Yeah, she'd been in bed for three days, probably asleep. And I knew they kept calling her the little one because she was weak, which obviously meant that she was about to die as soon as she like came back into it again. So I don't know. I can only imagine that they only wanted the two actresses who were the main ones to be in the film the most. And they didn't really want to use her that much. So they just didn't have her on set. Maybe she went on holiday or something. Who knows? Um, Maybe what? she was too busy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe she was that popular as an actress at the time that she just couldn't be there, so they wrote her out of part of the yeah. plot. She could only um, give them a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, I thought the ending was reasonable in that it was a little surprising and quite well done, but the ugh, the dialogue is so stilted through this. I think even the ones that seemed more experienced as actors and actresses were not that great, but they were better than the three lead girls. Um, so you've got this setup of a daughter, an, uh, like a mature woman, and her older mother, who's in a wheelchair, and their weird relationship where the mother is bullying the daughter who's called Marianne Penrose and the older woman's called Mrs Penrose and the man who discovers the three girls and takes them up there is called Norman and he's like the local groundsman or handyman who like looks after their massive house that they're staying in which isn't like a big mansion and um so the mum absolutely hates men which is really over the top and, I don't know, not not that appealing as part of the plot, but, you know, that's their angle. So that kind of unfolds. But it's, it's just all way too obvious and over the top and, like, not really that believable. So, obviously, at some point, you're going to have some kind of male in the film who's the evil one. So you do kind of get that. Now, I'm very interested to know, what did you think of the first time that we see this... Um, creature or person in the film you just hear this heavy mouth breathing and you see an eye um what did you what did you make of that visual yeah so you covered quite a lot there um in terms of the question i mean i i don't know i didn't really know what to think it's like it looked like um if it's the scene that i'm thinking of it's like well this is a very orange eye it barely even <laughs> looks human like I'm not even sure what the fuck this is supposed to be. Um, you mentioned that, obviously, uh, you've got the two girls in particular who are incredibly wooden. Like, they're so wooden, they're practically, you know, should be made out of MDF and turned into furniture. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got them, and then you've got Marion, who is probably i imagine the most experienced actor on the crew she's all right and then you've got her mother who's overacting to oblivion she's like really over enunciating everything that she's saying and things like deny it you slut and things like that um oh God, yeah. yeah very yeah, very well, bizarre it's weird the way they say marianne as well because it's supposed to be marianne and then they keep saying miriam marianne miriam like really quick <laughs> Um, the other thing, weird thing is, I know this is like a big old mansion house, but the, the decor in there is questionable. It's so gaudy that it's almost <laughs> distracting from the film. <laughs> Can't believe that's what you got out of this. The decor is questionable. 
Well, you know, whilst the uh, dialogue's droning on like a piece of MDF talking, you're just checking out some gaudy floral wallpaper and carpet. Uh, yeah, it's like pretty hideous. And um, there's, a, there's quite a bit of piano playing where kind of Marianne is like the slave to the mum and she wants her to just amuse them. And the girl, I mean, this is 1982, but the girls are just sat there on the carpet playing dominoes, which is really fucking weird. They're not even worried at all. And like the, the close-up of the eye, my first impressions, I thought it might be a lizard or a frog. And then... I was just like, is this supposed to be, have they like literally filmed a frog's eye and they're trying to like make it out like it's some kind of lizard man? But like the actual man's sex breathing noise over the top of that shot of the eye is just ridiculous. I just thought, imagine being the guy to have to do that vocal for like the the overdub and then... (laughs) They just repeated that throughout the whole film at every tense moment when this creature or guy appears. And it's just like you don't know who it is until right at the end. Um, <laughs> I did quite like the use of the scythe for the one of the uh, deaths. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's a very, very good death. We like a good scythe death. Actually, that was the first death. And there are only four in this film, so it's not that action-packed. Yeah, and the film's not even all that long. And you've mentioned uh, Mark Commode uses this term basil exposition, which I think is very appropriate because, yeah, there's a lot of dialogue just explaining the plot in this film just to fill up time. It's like, look, we can see what's going on. Like, we don't need you to explain that, like, oh, you know, I don't like the way that, like, her mother is talking to her. I wouldn't take that shit. Yeah, don't you think she's a bit of a bully? Isn't there something weird going on here? And it's like, well, you don't really seem that fucking panicked. And then, like, they flip a coin and decide who's going to go out and phone the parents because the closest phone is three miles away, which they say is going to take, like, a few hours to walk to. And she no. thinks nothing of doing that in the rain. And They then, say it takes the better part of a day to walk two or three miles. Three miles! <laughs> and it's nothing. like, what the fuck? That takes like 50 minutes. I've done that a lot, you know, <laughs> across London. And he's like, oh, it's not about the distance. It's about the terrain and what's out there. <laughs> and it's like, what? And then... It's the ne- mountains or something. Fucking hell. Yeah. And then it's the next day... And Terry isn't even slightly worried that her friend hasn't come back, even though the, she's only supposed to be going three miles there and three miles back again, which is like maximum two hours. But it's the next day and she's like, oh, I'm sure she'll be all right. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did find that very strange how no one appeared concerned. They're like, where's my friend? She's not back yet. Oh, well, she must have, uh, you know, must have met someone or she must have got a lift back or something. In no way concerned that her friend is probably dead at this point. Well, definitely was dead. We know she's dead, but yeah, she's not at all worried. Um, I thought the the bit with the tooth on the floor was quite a nice creepy touch. What did you think to that? Uh, it was all right. I didn't really think much of it, to be honest. Oh, I thought that was quite cool. And then... Um, the part where they all sit down to have dinner and then they have dinner in front of them but none of them eat any of it and then they go off 
to listen to the piano playing, but none of them have eaten any dinner, really, like, annoyed me. Especially as they've got this food on a plate, but then on the side of the plate, they've got three whole tomatoes each, just as part of the dinner. I was like... (laughs) (laughs) Who who the fuck has put that together? Because I notice shit like that, and I'm sure everybody else does, so... Uh, Make your dinner more realistic. Who's going to have three whole... um, tomatoes on the side of their plate uh i can't believe you put so much thought into this film really it's like uh what did you think of the music because the music there's a lot of wow 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 <laughs> sort of synth going on <laughs> that is a very good uh <laughs> depiction of what it actually is um that sounds a lot like it i thought it was what I expected. It's like other 80s slasher nasties that we watched before. They're a little bit ropey. It was kind of synthy and similar to those. So I guess I'm kind of used to it by this point. But what would you have said about it? I thought it was kind of shit, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's got that sort of early 80s late 70s sort of feel to it because what i was gonna say is apparently this film came out in 1982 but it doesn't feel like a film that came out in 1982 it feels like a film that came out in the late 70s it's got that kind of late 70s feel to it it all feels very natural by that it i mean like it's not really been done with a great deal of style in terms of the way that the people act they kind of act somewhat normal it all feels Mm. very lo-fi it just reminds me of something that, yeah, would have come out in, like, 1979. Yeah, agreed. It definitely does have that feel to it. Um, yeah, it does feel a little behind the time, especially with the music. And um, <laughs> I just thought that if you're 20 years old and you're driving to go to a jazz festival and that's, like, the highlight of your year, you probably deserve to be murdered in some person's random mansion. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of kind of scenes at the beginning of them driving. It's just, it's like Manos, the Hands of Fate. It's just driving for ages and nothing is happening. Yeah. And they've been missing ages and like nobody goes looking for them and stuff. It's just ridiculous. And there's this part where the the ending gets totally given away and then the girls don't figure it out for ages. Like they find a photograph and it totally gives away the ending. And you're like, oh, that's what it is. And then they just don't get it at all. They just put it away. And it's just like, oh, how stupid are you? <laughs> well, they were going to a jazz festival. And it's like, you don't look like you listen to jazz. like So mm. Ryan Gosling's character in La La Land would be happy because they like jazz. <laughs> but yeah. other than that, mm, yeah. Although, interestingly, hey, it's a you know exploitation film. There are not one but two shower scenes in the film. God, yeah. At one point, they're just sharing a bathroom, both naked. Like that's as if what you do every day with your best friend or something. It's just so weird. Yeah, very, yeah. very comfortable being naked with your best friend. Just hey, my boobs, you know. Oh, just completely but naked, like having a chat whilst they haven't even put the towel on and stuff. It's just so weird. <laughs> um, not that I was complaining though, because uh, they were very attractive. I'm not gonna lie, I do like myself some seventies ladies. So, well, I don't know. I don't think they were that attractive that it deemed them being uh, lead actresses in this film with no acting skills whatsoever. I mean, like Suzanne was clearly put in that other film um for that reason um 
the one about the rice that we talked about last time. Uh, the expose, yes. Expose. She was clearly cast for that reason, and her acting wasn't as terrible as these girls, but were they really that attractive that it deemed them being cast with literally no acting skills? I don't think they were. Well, it was, well, I think the late 70s, so didn't think it really mattered. Probably not. But did you notice some of the terrible editing in this film? Like, at one point there was a massive pause with just a black screen that last seemed to last for ages. <laughs> it was just like, like nothing. Like, they just didn't edit it <laughs> very well. Yeah, that was literally right at the start of the film. It's just like, what's going on? Like, uh, have I, if I missed something, is it playing? Is it not playing? What's going on? Yeah, and then it happens again near the end, and you're just like, w- uh, is this part of the film? And then no, it just comes back on again. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, a film like this, I have the term for it, which is unintentionally Lynchian. Um, <laughs> so these are films from this kind of period or the late 60s or the 80s where they're clearly made on a very low budget and this is in the golden period of American exploitation where you could basically do whatever you wanted and people kind of you know actually had ideas so even though films were made on a low budget they still were at least somewhat watchable and not utter pieces of shit like you get today um yeah and what you get because the camera is obviously not as good as you would get on a major production. It does have that very lo-fi quality and it gives you, you know, stuff that feels very dreamlike. Like this film does kind of have a dreamlike quality, I think. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, like you say, I didn't think it was as terrible as the bad horror films that we get these days. And I think if you like 80s horror and you wanted to watch this for a bit of a laugh, it does have redeeming qualities. The sets are interesting. The dialogue's terrible, but there are (laughs) redeeming aspects of this film. Um, One of the deaths towards the end was done like first-person perspective with the camera, and I thought that was very effective. The deaths overall weren't that realistic, but with the fake blood and the way it was angled, I thought it was quite effective. And kind of that typical 80s horror aesthetic that we all love, that's not terribly scary, it's watchable, um, but it feels like a horror film. You know, it's it's what you expect and it's what we kind of grew up watching. So for me, it is, you know, something worth watching. Um... Don't watch this as like a serious watch, but do watch it if you are interested and want to see one of the banned films of the 80s. Um, just for a laugh, really, I think. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's very entertaining in its own way. I wouldn't say it's like massively uh, memorable or massively... Um, what's the one I'm thinking of? Um... I wouldn't say it's massively incident-packed or anything like that. There are long stretches where people just talk for ages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not going to change your life, but it's definitely a good popcorn movie, like, if you're just chilling out at home. (laughs) Uh, And again, I think I probably know what you're going to say, but um, should it have been a video nasty? Absolutely not. (laughs) No, exactly. So it does kind of make you wonder, with all three films that we've talked about today what they were even really looking for when it comes to video nasties. Because it's not that, all right, maybe the death of the dog in the previous film, okay, we can kind of maybe excuse that. But with a film like this, what 
is it that is so objectionable that you feel that you know you're going to prosecute people for selling this um it makes tried, no sense i tried to pinpoint what it would be that would get them to even look at this film or you know add it to the list and I, maybe it's because it's lots of females that have apparently been killed not as part of the actual on-screen deaths but at the end they sort of say that there are other and it's all young girls it's implied that it's young girls and they've been like chopped up as far as we know um i think at some point there's an implication that something like maybe that young girls have been raped like they don't know what's happened to them that's what's sort of implied but it's not done that kind of detailed or obviously but did you pick up on that um at some point in the film i can't say that i picked that up but you know maybe maybe it's underlying you know maybe i just missed the subtext there but i i didn't really get anything of that from that description and they also said that the there was a younger brother of hers marion and that he'd never been quite right mentally and fundamentally he was like a five-year-old child um again it's not really worth banning it for and neither is the stuff about the young girls because at at this point in time in this era most victim victims in horror movies were all female anyway so it's not really that shocking to have a lot of young girls killed in a film so yeah i can't can't really pinpoint it but if i had to say what it was i would say maybe that was the the subtext underlying no, it's very strange that, say, this was a video nasty, but something like, I don't know, don't answer the phone wasn't. So, I don't know, it's all very, very confusing to me. But Because uh, really, it being a video nasty is the only thing that's kept this film out of obscurity, because otherwise it would just be just another 80 slasher film on a low budget. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame that it gets missed because although it's not a life-changing, amazing film, it is quite entertaining and it is typical of the 80s and it is a slasher. So, I mean, from that respect, it does need to be shared and watched, I think. (laughs) Now, it's interesting you say that um, because, um, first of all, the film is available in the UK on DVD from 88 Films. So uh, if our hilarious description of what happens in the film hasn't completely put you off and you want to check it out, that's how you do that. Um, Now, 88, I think it's 88 anyway, um, have also helped to remake this film. There is actually, believe it or not, a British remake of Unhinged that came out last year. And Mm. once again, I have seen it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's quite interesting that we're talking about how low-budget films from the 80s were much, much better than low-budget films now. Oh boy, is that the case here, because... The remake of Unhinged is an absolute piece of shit. It really <laughs> is. It's fucking terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I get that obviously like the actors in the original Unhinged aren't very good. And I get that, okay, you're going to remake something and you're going to remake Unhinged. I don't think anyone's going to be up in arms like how dare you remake Unhinged of all people. <laughs> but Nobody really knows about it for a start. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is actually an ideal film to try and remake. Because, yeah, it's not a sacred cow or anything like that. But they fuck it up so badly. It's unbelievably shit. 
What similarities are there? And please don't tell me they're going to a jazz festival. <laughs> well, no, they're not going to a jazz festival. So it's a group of girls. So there's only four girls this time. And they're going to their friend's wedding. Oh, okay. Um, and then are there any other similarities to the original? So, wait, so the story is basically the same. So it's a group of girls, although in the remake, they end up accidentally killing someone in the most retarded way imaginable. It's so fucking stupid. They end up killing someone by accident. They end up sort of driving along the back roads because it's always a case of, oh, let's take a shortcut because that always works in films, doesn't it? Yeah, let's take a (laughs) fucking shortcut to try and save time. Let's not stick to the main roads. right? (laughs) And they end up at the house of a dotty old woman, but she's there by herself. So there's no kind of mother figure in a wheelchair in this and mm. it's just fucking insultingly bad it just it actually <laughs> made me angry watching it as to how bad it is do we know who directed that or stars well, or anything? <laughs> so i can tell you exactly who directed it so the person to blame for the unhinged remake is a guy called dan allen whoever that is um, oh dan <laughs> yeah a bunch of people in it who are British, who I've never heard of. And the thing is, the women in it, they're not even really attractive. They've all got that kind of horsey-faced look. (laughs) God. I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh. (laughs) Possibly. I don't know. (laughs) But, yeah, they just were not appealing in any way. So the original Unhinged is actually a lot better than the remake. And the original Unhinged isn't even good. (laughs) I never thought I'd hear you say that, but okay. At least, I mean, we like classic 80s horror, so at least there's that, you know, (laughs) redeeming quality of this. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, ignore, like, the remake of Unhinged. Just don't watch it at all. Like, if you have to watch Unhinged, watch the original. It's much better. I have just had to Google Unhinged 2017, and I have to say, I I know what you mean about the horse face kind of thing. Oh, God. Oh, there you go. And that came for a woman, then, everyone. Don't get angry at me. Yeah, and there's, like, one still here that's on Google where it's, like, the car driving down a road and it says private road, no entry. So that just about sums up the whole thing. Oh, and it's also brought up on, on Google Images your favourite film next to it, Hellriser. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> one of the reviews of Hellriser on the poster is... Blood, boobs, and bags of atmosphere. <laughs> oh, that's on, that's on my to watch list just so I can see exactly what it was you loved about that film, as it was your number one worst film of 2017, Greg. Should say blood, boobs, and bags of shite because that's uh, not accurate. <laughs> Maybe they just changed that one word and put it on the poster, and it was originally that. Oh, oh, awesome. <laughs> I feel like this is a good place to end the show. <laughs> yeah, wonders will never cease. Um, so it does seem like a very appropriate place to end the show. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. It's been a really fun one today. Um, so I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, usual plugs. Um, so this is the Lament Configuration, not Demolition, as I kind of <laughs> went into at the start of the show. Um, so you can find us on Facebook at the lament configuration podcast you can find us on twitter at lament horror uh, we're on itunes or on youtube podbean stitcher and TuneIn radio so yeah if you uh, 
on, haven't done so already, please subscribe. Um, if you are feeling generous, please rate us five stars and give us a good review. And that way we'll get out there to the masses. Mm-hmm. Yes, please do leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That would really make my day. Um, I have been Body Count Girl Reoffend, as per usual. Looking forward to the next show, which will be up on Sunday in two weeks' time, as always, like clockwork. And you can find me on Facebook, Reoffend, that's F-E-N-D, and on Instagram and Twitter as at Rea underscore Fend. Sorry, I messed that up completely at Rio underscore Fend. Um, if you've listened to our other shows, you'll know that already anyway. Thank you so much for joining us again, and until next time. Yes, yeah, so on the next show, it's going to be an absolutely awesome show. It'll probably be my favourite show of the entire series, because we're covering, as I mentioned earlier, Jallo. So these are free video nasties with a Italian Jallo flavour. Um, until then, I'll leave you with, speaking of Jallo, um, this song is taken from Madhouse. This is by Riz Ortolani. Riz Ortolani's awesome. And uh, yeah, this is from right at the start of Madhouse. And I wish you a very good day. Ooh. <laughs>